Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. Welcome, oddities, to another oddcast featuring me, your odd man out. Thank you again for taking the time to hang out with me. I hope to make this worth your time. This week is going to be a continuation of my series on Freemasonry. And this week we're going to be continuing from where we left off on, is Freemasonry a religion or not? Now we know that it's been claimed by many prominent Freemasons that it absolutely is not a religion. But at the same time, some of those same Masons have went on to say that it is a religion. What does it matter? Well, maybe it doesn't matter at all to you, but I think it's good to get down to the bottom of some of these things because Freemasonry has had such an influence on politics going way back to the days of the monarchy, even before it was officially established in England, going back to the Stuarts and Hanovers, going way back to the Templars, So let's check out some information from some prominent Masons again, some authors who went on to say some things that I think will prove that, indeed, Freemasonry is a religion. But you can decide yourself after we're done. So let's get right to it. Well, the tenets of Freemasonry can include being born again or reborn, baptism, and anointing with oil, to name just a few. Now, Albert G. Mackey, the infamous Freemason scholar, he said that Freemasonry is not Christianity, nor a substitute for it, but the religion of Masonry is not sectarian. It admits men of every creed within its hospitable bosom, rejecting none and approving none for his particular faith. Masonry is, indeed, a religious institution. And in Morals and Dogma, the famous Albert Pike of the Scottish Rite, said that Masonry is a worship, 
but one in which all civilized men can unite. For it does not undertake to explain or dogmatically to settle those great mysteries that are far above the feeble comprehension of our human intellect. Now, one thing I've noticed, especially when it comes to Pike, that you have to really watch these guys. They're very clever in the way they word certain things, and they've talked about how they hide things from lower-level Masons. So I think we have to always look at what they say, take a second or third look, and really kind of focus on the phrasing, the sentences, and everything else. But we'll go on here. Pike also says that every Masonic Lodge is a temple of religion, and its teachings are instructions in religion. Now, a lot of these things sound great to a degree. Ooh, no pun intended. He says, whether during all that day he has once appealed in form or in terms to his conscience or not, whether he has once spoken of religion and God or not, if there has been the inward purpose, the conscious intent and desire that sacred justice should triumph, he has that day led a good and religious life and made a most essential contribution to that religion of life and of society. The cause of equity between man and man and of truth and right action in the world. There is also a religion of society. In business, there is much more than sale, exchange, price, payment, for there is the sacred faith of man in man. He also said that Masonic sense need not be books of sermons or pious exercises or of prayers. Whatever inculcates pure, noble, and patriotic sentiments or touches the heart with the beauty of virtue and the excellence of an upright life accords with the religion of masonry and is the gospel of literature and art. In Mason George Steinmetz in Freemasonry, its hidden meaning, said when the truth of this lesson has been realized, one discovers the most important facts of existence itself. Then, too, he learns that Masonry is religion as well. And maybe this doesn't belong in this subject on Freemasonry, but, but you can kind of decide yourself. It says here, Manly P. Hall, from an article called The All-Seeing Eye, The spiritual ray, striking hearts that long were cold, raises them from the dead. It is the living light which illuminates those still buried in the darkness of materiality. It is the power which raises by the grip of the lion's paw, it is the great light which seeks forever the spark within all living things and finding it awakens again dead ideas with the power of the master's word. Then the master mason becomes, indeed, the sun in Leo and reaching downward into darkness of crystallization and materiality raises his murdered builder from the dead by the grip of the master mason. We look at ex-mason late Jim Shaw, who actually went all the way up and was chosen for the 33rd degree in the Scottish Rite, and then gave it all up and wrote a tell-all book about it. And he said, in the deadly deception, in the 29th degree, you are anointed with oil and told that you are a priest and a prophet and a prince of the royal secret. He said, at the completion of the initiation, they were given Albert Pike's morals and dogma, and told that instructions were to be made to have the book returned to the Scottish Rite upon the death of the Brother Mason it was given to. And Albert Pike again said, But Masonry teaches and has preserved in their purity 
the cardinal tenets of the old primitive faith, which underlie and are the foundation of all religions. All that ever existed have had a basis of truth. All have overlaid the truth with error. And again, Hall says that despite statements to the contrary, Masonry is a religion seeking to unite God and man by elevating its initiates to that level of consciousness whereon they can behold with clarified vision the workings of the great architect of the universe. And getting back into Mackey's encyclopedia, this information can be found on pages 617 through 619. He says that, I contend without any sort of hesitation that masonry is, in every sense of the word, except one, and that its least philosophical and eminently religious institution, that without this religious element it would scarcely be worthy of cultivation by the wise and good. Who can deny that it is eminently a religious institution? But the religion of masonry is not sectarian. It is not Judaism, though there is nothing in it to offend the Jew. It is not Christianity, but there is nothing in it repugnant to the faith of a Christian. Its religion is that general one of nature and primitive revelation, handed down to us from some ancient and patriarchal priesthood, in which all men agree and in which no man can differ. It inculcates the practice of virtue, but supplies no scheme of redemption of sin. Then Mackey says, Look at its ancient landmarks its sublime ceremonies, its profound symbols and allegories, all inculcating religious observance and teaching religious truth. And who can deny that it is eminently a religious institution? Masonry, then, is indeed a religious institution, and on this ground mainly, if not alone, should the religious Mason defend it. Then we go on to another Masonic scholar, Henry Wilson Coyle, And he says in his Masonic Encyclopedia, on page 512, Some attempt to avoid the issue by saying that Freemasonry is not a religion, but it is religious, seemingly to believe that the substitution of an adjective for a noun makes a fundamental difference. It would be as sensible to say that man had no intellect but was intellectual, or that he had no honor but was honorable. The oft-repeated aphorism... Freemasonry is not a religion, but is most emphatically religion's handmaid, has been challenged as meaningless, which it seems to be. It goes on to say that Coyle devoted over 15,000 words to this question, and at page 512, he asks these questions of his own. Does Freemasonry continually teach and insist upon a creed, tenet, and dogma? Does it have meetings characterized by the practice of rites and ceremonies, in and by which its creeds, tenet, and dogma are illustrated by myths, symbols, and allegories? If Freemasonry were not a religion, what would have to be done to make it such? Nothing would be necessary, or at least nothing but to add more of the same. And he continues, That brings us up to the real crux of the matter. The difference between the lodge and a church is one of a degree and not of a kind. Some think that, because it is not a strong or highly formalized or highly dogmatized religion, such as the Roman Catholic Church, where it is difficult to tell whether the congregation is worshiping God, Christ, or the Virgin Mary, it can be no religion at all. But a church of friends exhibits even less formality 
and ritual than a Masonic lodge. The fact that Freemasonry is a mild religion does not mean it is no religion. And that was an excerpt from The Gods of the Lodge by Reginald Hopp Jr. And Albert Mackey again says on page 731 of his encyclopedia that the religious doctrines of Freemasonry are very simple and self-evident. They are darkened by no perplexities of sectarian theology and will stand out in a broad light, intelligible and acceptable by all minds, for they ask only for a belief in God and the immortality of the soul. And Manly P. Hall says in The Lost Keys of Freemasonry, Man is God in the making, and as in the mystic myths of Egypt on the potter's wheel, he is being molded. When his light shines out to lift and preserve all things, he receives the triple crown of the godhood. We're going back and forth between these experts here. These guys are the most well-respected of all the modern Freemasons. He says here, The truth is that Masonry is undoubtedly a religious institution, which handed down through a succession of ages from that ancient priesthood who first taught it and embraces the great tenets of existence of God and the immortality of the soul. And Pike says that to us, the whole world is God's temple, as in every upright heart, to establish all over the world the new law and reign of love, peace and charity and toleration, and to build that temple most acceptable to God and the erecting of which masonry is now engaged. And then back to Henry Coyle. A man may be born without that religious ceremony. He may be married without religious ceremony. But one moment comes to every man when he feels the need of that missing thing when he comes to crossing into the great beyond. Freemasonry has a religious service to commit the body of a deceased brother to the dust once it came to speed the liberated spirit back to the great source of light. Many Freemasons make this flight with no other guarantee of a safe landing than their belief in the religion of Freemasonry. And 32-degree Freemason and author J.D. Buck, he said that humanity is the only personal God, and Christos is the realization or perfection of the divine persona in individual conscious experience. It will be urged by modern theologians that this view dethrones Christ. To this objection, the answer is that any other view orphans humanity. It is far more important that men should strive to become Christ's than that they should believe that Jesus was the Christ. The real genius of masonry is the perpetual conflict. Then we look to Eliphas Levy, who was obviously Albert Pike's hero, one of his heroes, and that's why he plagiarized him so much in Morals and Dogma. The great Kabbalistical association known in Europe under the name of Masonry appeared suddenly in the world when the revolt against the church had just succeeded in dismembering Christian unity. Then we look to Alice Bailey, leader of the Theosophical Society and Lucius Trust. And she said in her book, Externalization of the Hierarchy, The Masonic movement is the custodian of the law. It is the home of the mysteries and the seat of initiation. It holds in its symbolism the ritual of deity, and the way of salvation is pictorially preserved in its work. It is a far more occult organization than can be realized, and it is intended to be the training school for the coming advanced occultists. Now, if you look on universalcomasonry.com, 
She is listed as one of the famous co-Masons, as well as Alice Bailey, who she replaced in the Theosophical Society. In fact, Alice Bailey actually led universal co-Masonry. Then you look to Benjamin Cream, who I think was another theosophist, if I'm not mistaken, but definitely an occultist. And he said in the reappearance of the Christ, the new religion will manifest, for instance, through organizations like Masonry. In Freemasonry is embedded the core or the secret heart of the occult mysteries, wrapped up in number, metaphor, and symbol. And in one of Albert Pike's lesser-known books, which I believe was before Morals and Dogma, it's called Magnum Opus, and you can find it on archive.org, or you can actually find it on the Bezos website, Amazon, but it's like $200 or something like that. He says in there, the ancient and accepted rite raises a corner of the veil, even in the degree of apprentice. For in that, it declares that masonry is a worship. And in the 19th degree, in Albert Pike's Legenda, he says that masonry has and always had a religious creed. Of course, you may be familiar with this quote from Manly P. Hall, who says the true mason is not creed-bound. He realizes with the divine illumination of his lodge, his religion must be universal. Christ, Buddha, or Muhammad, the name means little, for he recognizes only the light and not the bearer. He worships at every shrine, bows before every altar, whether in the temple, mosque, or cathedral, realizing with his true understanding the one of all spiritual truths. And going back to Pike, another quote, but masonry teaches and has preserved in their purity the cardinal tenets of the old primitive faith, which underlie and are the foundations of all religions. And so, my friends, I think that with these quotes by famous Masons, very well-respected men in their brotherhood, they have proven that, yes, of course, Masonry is a religion. And I think we can also gather that it is possibly Luciferian. Now, do they outright worship Lucifer? I've not exactly seen any proof of that, although we know that there are a couple of quotes by Pike and Manly P. Hall as well as actually Leadbeater, C.W. Leadbeater, who was a Freemason. I believe he was a 33rd. He was 32nd or 33rd. And he was also one of the leaders of the Theosophical Society, along with Blavatsky. And later on, I believe, found out to be a child molester. But let's look at some more quotes and see what you think about the possible Luciferian aspects of Freemasonry. Now we get into quotes about Lucifer. In the book Fire and Ice, it says here that it should be clear that the Lucifer of the F.S. Fraternus Saturni, if I'm not mistaken, is not identical to the medieval Christian notion of the devil, although it must also be realized that the medieval image is seen as a largely misunderstood vision of the truth. The myth contained in the book of Genesis is considered to be basically true in the cosmic events it recounts. However, the serpent is seen as the bringer of knowledge or gnosis, and hence a force for true good, while the creator God is seen as a force of ignorance and fear. The fraternus Saturni consciously tries to think of this entity in pre-Christian or Gnostic terms and tries to follow the concepts outlined by what they consider 
Luciferian Freemasons, such as Albert Pike or Giosu Carducci. Samuel Onweir, in his Tarot and Kabbalah, says that by the Luciferic ladder, one must descend and one must suffer. We need to become masters of both the superior and inferior forces. The Father who is in secret commands that which must be done. Only upon receiving the order does one descend. Only he who falls loses his initiatic grades, not he who has descended. Orders are received upon the conclusion of the work. One now no longer makes use of sex capriciously. It is the Father who is the Lord of this act, and it is the Father from whom the order must come. Sex does not belong to oneself, but rather to the Father. I just mentioned that because he talks about the Luciferic ladder, and he says here, too, that the law of Leviathan is that of a mason who has already passed all of the works or esoteric grades. Because he has already been decapitated, he cannot be recapitated. He can neither be harmed from above nor below. He lives in keeping with the law, the great law. This is the higher wisdom of esoteric Freemasonry. Now, in an article I found called Confessions of a Former Freemason Officer, Serge Abad Gallardo, a former senior official of the French government and venerable master of the Freemasons, reveals Freemasons' anti-Christian spiritual and ideological roots and its impact on democratic political life. This was a really interesting article, but I'm just going to read a little bit here. It says, What made you think you were serving Lucifer? As the title of one of your recent books suggests, One day when I was an officer in the lodge of the Ledroit Humane, I heard a first-grade ritual that I'd never heard before, and it pays tribute to Lucifer. It is also part of the ancient and accepted Scottish rite. I heard the venerable master say, We must thank Lucifer for bringing light to men. I was quite taken aback. goes on to say that this ritual, and Freemasonry in general, consider that religions, and Catholicism in particular, obscure the truth to the believers and keep it to themselves, while Freemasonry provides keys to human beings so that they can fully free themselves. Furthermore, in my two last books, I quoted extracts of a document that is accessible only to high-grade members, so the so-called Blue Lodges, which gather the new members, don't have access to it. It is taken from Paroles Plureles, a publication issued by my Masonic Order, in which are compiled the best-written texts regarding societal issues or Masonic rituals and that are on display in lodges. In this three- or four-page document, there is a text that praises transgression and the one that allowed it, Lucifer. It is worth noting that Freemasons usually mention Lucifer rather than Satan. And then George Steinmetz again from The Lost Keys of Freemasonry. He says that, Be still and know that I am God, that I am God, the final recognition of all the all in all, the unity of the self with the cosmos, the cognition of the divinity of the self. So we get into this Luciferic idea. Knowledge makes you your own God. Apotheosis, if you will. So it's very Gnostic. And Gnosticism, again, comes out of Kabbalah. To the profoundest insight of the human soul, that God becomes man and man becomes God. 
That was The Religion of Freemasonry and Interpretation by McCoy Publishing. And Eliphas Levy, in Transcendental Magic, wrote that the Lucifer of the Kabbalah is not an accursed and stricken angel. He is the angel who enlightens, who regenerates by fire. He is to the angels of peace what the comet is to the mild stars of the springtime constellations. And Manly P. Hall says that Lucifer is the greatest mystery of symbolism. The secret knowledge of the Rosicrucians concerning Lucifer is nowhere so plainly set forth as in these plates, which virtually reveal his true identity and carefully guarded secret, about which little has been written. Lucifer is represented by the number 741. And again, another excerpt from Levy, If the magician still refuses, realizing that the demon will make it impossible for him to fulfill his contract, other terms will be discussed until at last a pact is agreed upon. It may read as follows, I hereby promise the great spirit Lucifuge, prince of demons, that each year I will bring unto him a human soul to do with as it may please him. And in return, Lucifuge promises to bestow upon me the treasures of the earth and fulfill my every desire for the length of my natural life. The old Faustian bargain down at the crossroads. Emily P. Hall says in Initiates of the Flame, Those who follow the path of faith, or of the heart, use water, and are known as the sons of Seth, while those who follow the path of the mind and action are the sons of Cain, who was the son of Samael, the spirit of fire, or Satan, according to the Zohar. Today we find the latter among the alchemists, the hermetic philosophers, the Rosicrucians, and the Freemasons. And we may go back to this quote again in the Kabbalah and Freemasonry episode, but Professor Gershom Sholem in the Messianic Idea in Judaism says that, We are all involved in a messianic adventure, and we are called upon to do our part. The Messiah himself will not bring the redemption. Rather, he symbolizes the advent of redemption, the completion of the task of amendation. It is therefore not surprising that little importance is given to the human personality of the Messiah in the Lurianic Kabbalah literature, where the Kabbalists has no special need of a personal Messiah. But like all mystics, they were at once conservatives and radicals. Since tradition spoke of a personal Messiah, they accepted him while revolutionizing the content of the traditional idea. I'm mentioning this because we know that masonry stems from Kabbalah. He goes on to say that we have then a complete array of misconceptions in the new Kabbalah that show an inner logic a galut and a redemption. A galut and redemption are not historical manifestations peculiar to Israel, but manifestations of all being, up to and including the mystery of divinity itself. The Messiah here becomes the entire people of Israel rather than an individual redeemer. The people of Israel as a whole prepares itself to amend the primal flaw. The pages of the Talmud tractate Sanhedrin, which deal with the Messianic age, are full of the most extravagant formulations of this kind, and they drive the point that the Messiah will come only in an age which is either totally pure 
were totally guilty and corrupt. Now, you can think of tikkun and the tikkun olam in Judaism as this repairing of the world as the Freemasons' idea of the great work. It's pretty much the same thing. And we'll get much deeper into this again on our episode of Kabbalah and Freemasonry. Now, this may tie into our Kabbalah and Freemasonry episode. I'm quite sure it will, and we may repeat it there again. But this is yet another quote, actually two quotes from Albert Pike, where he says, The true name of Satan, the Kabbalists say, is that of Yahweh reversed. For Satan is not a black god, but the negation of God. The devil is the personification of atheism or idolatry. For the initiates, this is not a person, but a force, created for good, but which may serve for evil. It is the instrument of liberty or free will. They represent this force, which presides over the physical generation, under the mythological and horned form of the god Pan. Thence came the he-goat of the Sabbath, brother of the ancient serpent and light-bearer or phosphor of which the poets have made the false Lucifer of the legend. I think this is interesting because he says the true name of Satan, the Kabbalists say, or Kabbalists say, is that of Yahweh reversed. And then in another quote, he says the Kabbalah is the key of the occult sciences and the Gnostics were born of the Kabbalists. That's from Magnum Opus. And of course, when we get into Kabbalah, we know that Professor Gershom Sholem, he's considered still the eminent expert on mystical Judaism and Kabbalism and Sabbateanism. He's dead now, of course, but he was a professor at Hebrew University, and he became an Orthodox Jew himself, and he was a staunch Zionist. But that aside, he talks quite a bit in his research about how Gnosticism came out of Kabbalism and mystic Judaism. Now let's look at Blavatsky, which Blavatsky says that in her own words, she was not a Freemason of the West, but had went through lodges in the East, in India and places like that. So as far as I can tell, she was not initiated in any American or English lodges, but was initiated in other lodges. And she says, Lucifer represents life, thought, and progress, civilization, liberty, and independence. Lucifer is the Logos, the serpent, the Savior. That is from the secret doctrine. She says, it is Satan who is the god of our planet and the only god in the secret doctrine. The celestial virgin, which thus becomes the mother of gods and devils at one and the same time, for she is the ever-loving and beneficent deity. But in antiquity and reality, Lucifer, or Luciferus, is the name. Lucifer is divine and terrestrial light, the Holy Ghost and Satan, at one and the same time. Again, from the secret doctrine. And here we see from Rosen, a French book on Freemasonry. It is Le Enemy Social. Pages 348 and 349, the phrase about Gesta Satana per Masonis can be found on the title page and is quoted again in the last lines of the book 
on page 424 in Satan at Sea, and that's at Sea as in French, E-T, then C-I-E, Rosen summarized the supreme secret of the Scottish and Kabbalistic Freemasonry as Satan is the one and only God. But it remains somewhat unclear whether the followers of these rites were thought to be aware of this. It was only Rosen himself, it appears, who had unveiled this hidden core. And in the fall of Lucifer, Eliphas Levy recounted how God offers his beautiful daughter liberty as a bride to his angels. Lucifer at once abducts her, but when he has taken her down to his infernal residence, he discovers that she has died. The enraged angel proceeds to promenade her corpse over the earth where the splendor of even her dead body incites the nations to revolution. The political application of the brief poem, hard to miss as it is, is made explicit by the last strophe. O people, O Lucifer, your arm is powerless, led astray by hate and defiled by blood. Your bride shall live when, laying down your arms, you will feel tears welling up in your softened eyes. Your bride shall live when, free in every place, you will be great enough to submit yourself to God. And while we're on the subject of Lucifer and Freemasonry, C.W. Leadbeater, a theosophist and high-level Mason who wrote several books on Masonry and Gnosis and different things like that, he's got a couple of quotes in one of his books And he mentions Lucifer just kind of casually, if you will, talking about rituals in the lodge. And he says here, as has been explained in chapter 3, when the floor has thus been set apart and prepared, no one passes across it except the candidates who are taken there for the purposes of initiation and are intentionally submitted to the influence of its magnetism. The thurifer, when he is sensing the altar, and the immediate past master, when he goes down from the deos to perform the duty of the volume of the sacred law, or of altering the position of the S and C, I'm not exactly sure what that is, as we change from one degree to another, one other exception is made when the senior deacon, during the ceremony, lighting the candles, comes to the altar to receive the sacred fire from the immediate past master. The immediate past master lights a taper at the sacred fire, and with it kindles the small candle standing in an ornamental brass vessel which the senior deacon, as Lucifer, carries to the right worshipful master. And then again on page 93, he says that the senior deacon is the Lucifer who bears the light to his fellow men. The light having been given to him from the sacred fire by the immediate past master, he carries it to the right worshipful master, who by means of a small taper lights it from the tall candle standing on his right and then puts out the taper with an extinguisher. And then Gary Wayne has an interesting quote here from his book, Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Freemasons garner another phrase dear to their beliefs known as Lucius, which is their secret calendar. Annalusius is translated as the year of light, which some believe began in the year 4000 BCE. Richard Noon writes that Annalusius is the legendary date memorializing the founding of the ancient craft masonry in about 4000 BCE. A day to that coincides chronologically with the life of Cain, 
the father of the seven sacred sciences. More importantly, Anna Lucius is the Freemasonry calendar dating back to Freemasonry's year zero, the year God expelled Lucifer from heaven. And wouldn't you know when you use the septenary cipher, which is one of the gematria ciphers that Albert Pike was fond of using and Freemasons use a lot, you get Lucifer equals number 32. Freemasonry equals number 32. What else equals number 32? Well, stonemason, King Solomon, Stuart, spelled with a U, Hanovers, Tabernacle, Dog Star, which is Sirius, Sanctuary, the word Gematria, Hitler, Good Evil, Communist, Assassin, Hellish, Blackstone, War for Oil, Holy Grail, Globalizer, Serpent, Deceive, Godless, Songbird, Fortune, Pagan Gods, Blood Magic, Lizard Brain, Sodomite. Now maybe that's nothing, nothing to us, but it's pretty interesting that so many of those words relating to masonry equal 32, and we could look into 33, and we'll probably look into that again. I think we've mentioned that before, but I know a lot of people think that gematria is ridiculous. Maybe that's silly, but it's not silly to the Freemasons. It's not silly to the various occult Crowley-esque organizations, and it's definitely not silly to the Kabbalists, the Messianic Jews, who use this all the time, One doesn't have to spend much time on Chabad.org to find out that these rabbis use gematria and numerology often to make predictions and to identify with certain things. So we need to learn a little bit more about that. It's not just some silly thing that we need to cast aside if we really want to understand the ways of the world. And one more word, if I left it out, I apologize. The word building equals 32 in the septenary cipher. Another thing that I want to talk about that we've mentioned in the past, but I think we'll go a little bit deeper today, and that is the deception towards the lower-level initiates in Freemasonry. And this is admitted even though a lot of Masons act as if it's not true. Now, you look at morals and dogma, and you see that Albert Pike's pretty clear in there. They are absolutely deceptive. They hide things. And we'll look at a few of the quotes from him and some other people as well. He says that the ancient symbols and allegories always have had more than one interpretation. They always had a double meaning and sometimes more than two, one serving as the envelope of the other. He says that the Templars, like all other secret orders and associations, had two doctrines. One concealed and reserved for the masters, the other public, reminds us of Kabbalah. He says in Legenda, It was never intended that the mass of Masons should know the meaning of the blue degrees. They deceive and elude those who read their works. Masonry permits the utterance of false interpretations, which serve the double purpose of the misleading and ignorant, the idle and the indolent, whom it is desirable to lead astray and indirectly indicating to the wise and studious the true way leading forward to the light. Again, he says, Masonry conceals its secrets from all except its adepts and sages or the elect 
and uses false explanations and misinterpretations of its symbols to mislead those who deserve only to be misled, to conceal the truth which it calls light, and to draw them away from it. And of course, he says the blue degrees are but the outer court or portico of the temple. Part of the symbols are displayed there to the initiate, but he is intentionally misled by false interpretations. It is not intended that he should understand them, but it is intended that he shall imagine he understands them. Their true explanation is reserved for the adept and the princes of masonry. Occultist and author Hone Ronsky said, Pure or speculative masonry is properly only the great nursery from which all mystic associations choose their chiefs. All the grades of initiation are so arranged that the great part of Freemasons, far from doubting the aim of their affiliation, see in it only an object of mutual pleasure and goodwill. Only those who have been tested are admitted into the higher grades, and it is from among that latter that the different branches of applied Freemasonry are formed, whose aim is manifestly to realize, by deeds and according to circumstances, the liberal mystic speculations of Freemasonry. And Wilmhurst says in The Meaning of Masonry, The instruction lectures associated with each degree of the craft purport to expand the doctrine of the system and to interpret the symbols and rituals. But these lectures themselves stand in similar need of interpretation. Indeed, they are contrived with very great cunning and concealment. Their compilers were confronted with the dual task of giving a faithful, if partial, expression of esoteric doctrine, and at the same time of so masking it that its full sense would not be understood without some sort of enlightenment and should convey little or nothing at all to those unworthy or unripe for the gnosis or wisdom teaching. They charge that the task with signal success and in a way which provokes admiration from those who can appreciate it for their profound knowledge of and insight into the science of self-knowledge and regeneration. George Steinmetz, 33rd degree Mason, says in its hidden meaning, the average Mason is lamentably ignorant of the real meaning of Masonic symbology and knows little of its esoteric teachings. And Eckerd says that, I have said and I repeat that many Masons, even in the Masonic degrees, do not suspect the hidden meaning of the symbols which they use for what is taught and practiced in the higher degrees. And Manly P. Hall says that Freemasonry is a fraternity within a fraternity, an outer organization concealing an inner brotherhood of the elect. It is necessary to establish the existence of these two separate yet independent orders, the one visible and the other invisible, in each generation, only a few are accepted in the inner sanctuary of the work. The great initiate philosophers and Freemasons are masters of the secret doctrine, which forms the invisible foundations of every great theological and rational institution. And in The Lodge and the Craft, Rollin C. Blackmer says, The great mass of our membership are densely ignorant of everything connected with Masonry. William H. Russell in Masonic Facts for Masons. Nearly every Mason thinks he knows all about Masonry. As a matter of fact, however, he does not. And then again, Manley P. Hall says the initiated brother realizes that his so-called symbols and rituals 
are merely blindly fabricated by the wise to perpetuate ideas incomprehensible to the average individual. He also realizes that few Masons of today know or appreciate the mystic meaning concealed within these rituals. And Albert Mackie in his Encyclopedia, Volume 2, says that each of the pagan gods had besides the open public a secret worship paid to him to which none were admitted but those who had been selected by preparatory ceremonies called initiations. This secret worship was termed the mysteries. And connected to that quote, Paul Foster Case said in the Masonic Letter G, actually the old mystery schools were far in advance of the practical and theoretical knowledge of modern psychology. Long experience had perfected their techniques, and he who has any first-hand knowledge of their procedures knows beyond any peradventure that it is the real secret of Freemasonry. Isn't that a fascinating comment? And on that note, that finishes up episode 150 of the Oddcast. And like always, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me. And hopefully you learned something you can take with you. You can mention some of this information in conversations with others. And feel free to share the show, share the links, tell other people about the show. Leave me a good review, if you will. And also, if you want to help out the show or support the show, just go to patreon.com forward slash the odd man out. And I want to get to thanking my patrons immediately. I want to thank Chris. I want to thank KF. I want to thank Cole. I want to thank Ashley. I want to thank that crazy bread man for being a covert co-conspirator. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Ruckus, for being a producer of the show. Please check out Ruckus's content on alternatecurrentradio.com as well as TNT Radio. Thank you, No Evil Shall Fear. Thank you, Mark from Pusatonic Live. Thank you, James. Thank you, Bill, for being a producer of the show. Thank you, John Brisson, for being a covert co-conspirator of the show. Check out Weave Red on Twitter and find all of John's links on there. Thank you to the Mighty Kilowatt. Thank you to Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, David. Thank you, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Find all of Jack's content on all your podcasting platforms. And I want to thank my podcasting family, AlternateCurrentRadio.com. Get over there and check out all their fine talk and music shows. Also check out my friend Brian Hesher, the man behind ACR, on his five days a week show on TNT Radio called State of the Nation. And last but not least, thank you to Fringe Radio Network for carrying my show as well as many other great shows. Cheers and blessings, guys. And remember, their order is not our order. See ya.
Oh, my God.